All right, well, this morning, I want to spend um, just uh, a Sunday in a little bit of a character study. We're going to take a break from our series through the parables of Jesus to spend time with a very intriguing figure from the Old Testament. She's a, a woman. She's an ancestor of Jesus. The Messianic line would be continued through her. She is the great-great-grandmother of King David, and she was a spy and a double agent in her own day. She's not a Jew. She uh, was not born among God's people. In fact, she was born among a people who were so renowned for their wickedness that God decided that he would destroy them. But she and her family alone, out of a city devoted to destruction, would survive. And her name is Rahab. Uh, the Bible identifies her in both the Old Testament and New Testament as working as a prostitute. However, I think it's best understood in that culture and in that day that she was, in fact, did that professionally. Um, but most likely, she did so in the temples uh, that, they, that they had there. Uh, they would have fertility rituals that were sympathetic. So they would have temple prostitutes quite often. And it's most likely, though not, we can't say definitively, that she was engaged in um, working in support of what essentially boiled down to a religious right among those people, um, working as a temple prostitute. We can't say that definitively, but that's what she did most likely for a living. Uh, a little bit of background um, to bring us up to speed. We're going to find the story of Rahab. Most of where we're, we'll be camping out this morning is found in Joshua chapter 2. When the Israelites came up out of Egypt, after 400 years in slavery in Egypt, God brought them out by miraculously parting the Red Sea. And then they came to the promised land, and you might remember they sent out some spies to go and search out the land, and they came back. Of the 12 spies, 10 brought back a report that was very discouraging and scary, um, basically just frightened everybody's socks off and said, we can't possibly we'll go over there and we'll all be killed. And two of the spies brought a report filled with faith that they thought they could take it, they could do it, um, but the people decided we're not going over there. And God, as a punishment, uh, then allowed them to wander for 40 years in the desert. And so now they've come out of their years of desert wandering, their 40 years during which that generation had one by one died off, and a new generation hardened in the desert life hardened towards greater dependence on God, greater faith. God had brought them through some things. They now come again to the promised land. Uh, God, just as they were brought out of Egypt by a miraculous parting of the Red Sea, God brings them into the promised land by a miraculous parting of the Jordan River. It was at flood stage, is what the Bible tells us. But God parted the river so that they crossed on dry land into the promised land. One of the things I always make this point when I come to this part of the story or touch upon it in any way, but although the miraculous parting is often emphasized, one of the sobering truths about this incident is that once they were all across, God caused the river to flow back in behind them. There was no going back. <laughs> and I think that that is just as worthy of emphasizing in the Christian life, that just as we're brought in, that is a permanent state. And now we have some things to grapple with, to fight with, to wrestle with. And it's a do or die kind of proposition. 
So they cross over the, the Jordan River. God's people are now in the promised land, but they are, have not yet taken possession of the promised land. It's a bit like if I gave you, uh, I, I'm not in a position to do this for you, but let's say on my deathbed I was going to will to you land in Alaska that had gold reserves underground in excess of $1 billion. And I gave you the deed. You, and by taking possession of that deed, you are in fact the owner of a billion dollars worth of gold. But you still got to go in there and mine it out. Isn't that right? It's in the ground. It's not yet in your bank account. You own it. It's promised to you. But you got to go in and mine it out. In a very similar way, God has given them this land. But now he's given them the task of subduing it, of tearing down enemy strongholds, making it their own. And so it's been given to them by promise. God has promised to go with them and to help them, but there is work to be done. In this, I see kind of a picture of our justification in Christ and the work of sanctification that then follows on the heels of it. Right? We were all brought into God, into Christ and His promises through a miracle, just like the parting of the Jordan River. You were brought in to the kingdom, to the promises, by way of an absolute miracle that you had nothing to do with. That's justification. That's how you were made right with God. But then everybody who was made right in a once-for-all, one-time event, then what follows in the life of every believer is a process. Justification is a once-for-all transaction. Sanctification is a process. We were brought in by the promise, by the miracle, by what Jesus did for us, but now begins the process of bringing order to our inner world. You see, when the Israelites came across the river, everywhere in every corner of the promised land were fortified positions that were opposed to the work of God in, in giving that land to, the, to His people. And when you become a Christian, when you enter into the promises by way of the miracle of what Jesus did, every corner of your heart is filled with these strongholds of sin that have to be torn down, absolutely put to the sword. And that is a wild and woolly and unruly place in each and every one of us. And the job before us as Christians is to rest in the promise. <laughs> You're justified. That won't be taken from you. You are saved. But anyone who has been saved does care about the work of bringing order to our inner world. We become lovers of righteousness. We get serious about the work of putting sin to death in our lives. And I, always when I come to this point where we're talking about crossing the Jordan, I just feel it's worthwhile to touch on that. I think it is a picture in our Old Testament of the saving work of Christ, in that, a foreshadowing of it. They cross, and what they do is they send two spies to kind of scope out Jericho. Jericho is the very first city that they come to in the promised land. It's the first obstacle. Uh, they stay, these men, stay at the home of a local prostitute named Rahab. And if you think about it, that is a great place for spies to stay. It's a place where it's not unusual for strange men to be seen coming and going. It might be a natural place to seek a place to stay if you're a man traveling in a strange country like that. Jericho is the entry point to the land of the Canaanites. Jericho itself, archaeologists have determined this. It covers an area, if you're good at picturing 
territory. It covers about seven acres, would be the footprint of the city of Jericho. It was protected by a double ring of walls. The outer wall was about six feet thick, um, roughly sort of the width of the double doors in the back, if you want to picture that. So the walls, the outer wall would be about six feet thick, and the inner wall was twice that width. It was about 12 feet thick. Uh, It was surrounded by a steep incline. Jericho had a secure water source within its walls. And uh, it's a big city, one of the principal cities in Cana. The king of Jericho gets reports about two Israelite spies who have gone into Rahab's apartment. And the whole city's on edge. The Israelites, in coming up out of, the, out of, the, out of Egypt, they had, had many brushes with different peoples along the way, and word has reached Jericho that they're on the move. The whole city's on edge. They get word that these two spies are in Rahab's apartment. Soldiers come pounding on her door, and they say, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they are spies. Rahab, for her part, had hidden the spies under some stalks of flax that were drying up on the roof. Uh, Flax was uh, something that was farmed in that region. It was used for making linen. And again, archaeologists have helped us out here. They've determined that flax and linen production, it was a major industry in Jericho. Flax stalks are about three feet long, and they were commonly soaked in water and then piled in the sun or uh, somewhere out like on a level roof to dry. So they say, bring them out. She's hidden them underneath the flax piled up on the roof. And at this moment, Rahab has this, I think, kind of a crisis of faith. What is she going to do? In a moment, she has a split-second decision, and she decides to lie. Uh, She says to the soldiers, it's true, they were here, Uh, But I didn't know where they were from, and they left before the gates were closed for the night. In that city, back in those days at night, they would close the city gates. And she says, they were here, but they left before the gates were closed for the night. I don't know where they went. But then she adds, you better hurry, go get them. And the soldiers believe her. And then Rahab is left in her apartment with these two spies, And this is what she says to them. Listen carefully to the words of Rahab, these ancient words preserved for us in our Bible. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. The spies agree to help Rahab. 
Uh, Rahab helps the men escape by lowering them down over the wall, for her house was built into the side of the city wall, and she instructs them to go to the hills. The spies guarantee her safety on the following conditions. One, she doesn't spill the beans about their mission. Two, she has to tie a scarlet cord from the window so they will know whose house is hers. And they make it very plain to her that if anyone ventures outside of her house when they enter the city, they will be killed. Safety will only be found inside of the apartment with the scarlet cord hanging out of the window. Rahab agrees to these terms. And the spies hide out in the hills for three days, and then they return to Joshua with the report that the people's hearts were melting for fear of them. Now we fast forward to chapter 6. God had miraculously held back the flow of the Jordan River so the people could cross over on the dry land. And it says that the city Jericho was totally shut up. Uh, No one went out from the city, no one came in because of the Israelites. I imagine the feeling must have been kind of like in a frontier fort. Uh, It's seven acres. I imagine if I was living in the outlying towns or farms, once the Israelites had crossed the river and there was this suddenly a large invading people, I bet people would have turned to Jericho as a fortress, as a place of protection. And the idea here is that they've closed the gates and nobody's going in, nobody's coming out. They are just sort of in a bunker, sort of. They're going to wait this thing out. I imagine the mood inside Jericho uh, must have been tense. Uh, There probably would have been anxiety. And God gives Joshua an unusual plan for taking the city. God tells Joshua, he says, For six days, all the fighting men of Israel, preceded by the Ark of the Covenant, and seven priests bearing seven ram's horns will go out and march around the city once each day. And on the seventh day, they're going to repeat that performance, but they're going to do it instead of once, seven times in a row, with the priests sounding the trumpets all the while. But on completing the seventh circuit of the city, the priests were to give a long blast on the horns, which was the cue for all the fighting men to shout in unison with a great shout, and God promises that the walls will fall down flat. Uh, One of the great signs of Joshua's faith is that he told them that this was what would happen in advance, which is bold, I think. It's a very uh, unorthodox plan for the taking of a city, and I can only imagine that there was some trepidation, perhaps. You can't tell this many people it's going to happen this way, and not have some fear that it might not. But maybe Joshua was just so filled with the Spirit of God, so filled with faith that he said it easily. But that's a hard thing to say. But they did it. Joshua explained that according to God, everything and everyone inside must be destroyed. It's a picture again of what we are to do with sin in our lives. Destroy it utterly and completely. Don't trim it back, but absolutely tear it out, burn it up, get rid of it. 
Charles Spurgeon once famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I think that's true. And things, guys, go just as God had promised. They go out and they do their... But that must have been very creepy, right? Once a day they come out and they walk around your city. And then they do it again and again and again. And then on the seventh day, they do it seven times. I wonder what they thought inside the city. We're not going to get into much detail on that. You can read it in Joshua 6 if you want. But the walls come tumbling down. And God's people who were surrounding the city, it was seven acres, but you can imagine that's not so big a space that it can't be ringed by a large number of people. And when the walls came down, it was, they just came in from every direction. The town was completely overrun. What I want to do, though, is not focus on that. I want to come back to Rahab. Let's think about this person for a little bit. It's apparent to me from reading the account in Joshua chapter 2 that before Rahab had ever encountered the Israelite spies, or perhaps before she'd even ever met an Israelite, that she had somehow come to have a faith in their God. I don't know how this happened. I think it's impossible to say exactly how she got the information that she did. But really, as I look back on the way that God drew me to himself, it's actually a difficult thing for me to precisely say how that happened, even though I lived it. I I don't know exactly how I got all the information that I did. It came from somewhere. The tug of God on a person's heart is often hidden and unseen. He speaks to the sinner in surprising ways, through surprising people, under surprising circumstances, and even at surprising times. Jericho was located on an important trade route between the great powers of Babylon and Egypt. And her profession as a prostitute would no doubt have made Rahab well-positioned to come into regular contact with people who told her things from outside the world of Jericho. Amazing stories about the God of the Israelites who had given them victories that could not be credited to human ability alone. She'd heard about the story of the parting of the Red Sea. And it's clear from what she says to the spies in verse 10 that she has heard from somewhere all these amazing things that God has done, including giving them victory over two regional military powers, the Amorite kings Og and Sihon. But here's something I really want you to see here about Rahab. Other Canaanites had heard these stories too. In fact, in verse 10, Rahab didn't say, for I have heard. She said, we have heard about what the Lord did. So we can't credit Rahab's unlikely conversion merely to having acquired some knowledge about God's activities that others were ignorant of. She doesn't have some knowledge cornered that other people didn't have access to. She knew facts that were broadly known and understood among the people of Jericho. 
These reports may have started the soul wrestling within Rahab, but there was a deeper and supernatural work going on inside this woman. You see, it's not what you know, but it's what you love. It's what you've come to believe about that. Before she confessed her faith in God to the spies, God had been drawing her into a conversation about who he was in the quiet places of her heart. And here, without guide, teacher, or companion in the faith, we find Rahab in chapter 2 confessing with her mouth that God had mysterious, uh, a faith that God had mysteriously brought about in her heart. She told the spies, for the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. This is sort of poetic language encompassing all of creation. The Lord, the God of your people, he is God of everything, is what she's saying. He's God. This is a broad, vast statement. And in case we think maybe I'm just reading too much into this line that she would probably say anything to save her neck under the circumstances, God in His Word credits this moment to faith, true faith in the one God. In Hebrews 11.31, commonly known as the Hall of Fame of Faith in our New Testaments, it says, "...by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies." By faith, by faith. And we see some evidences of Rahab's faith, and I think it's worth noting some of these things. First, she says, I, first is what she said, okay? She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. That's how Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith. She says... I know the Lord has given you this land, which is currently occupied by my people. She's saying by faith, she's certain of something that she does not yet see. She knows. Here, though, she says not we know, as in the people of Jericho know. She says, I know. Okay, her knowledge about the Israelites is something that's widely known by anybody who can read the papers. <laughs> but what she's done with that information is personally brought about in her heart by her God. She says, we are all horrified. We all know what God has done. I know what is coming by faith. In chapter 2, verse 10, Rahab, speaking about the destruction of the Amorite, says, whom you devoted to destruction... And I think perhaps a better translation would be as whom you set apart as an offering to the Lord for destruction. She understands that the destruction of the Amorites has been a matter of devotion to God. And by inference, she's come to understand that God had already given the Israelites victory over Jericho. And that destruction would also be her fate if she was somehow not counted among God's people. That's what she's saying here in this moment. I know that my people are devoted to destruction. I want to be part of your people. <laughs> I think that's part of her calculus. 
And I think to translate that into New Testament terms, she's saying, I'm a sinner. I want to become part of the church. I want to join myself to God's people. I want to know salvation. Verse 11, for the Lord your God, He is God, singular. Not He is a God. He's a great God. He is God in the heavens above and the earth beneath. Again, poetic language encompassing all of creation, which is something very different from a normal Canaanite's theological view of the world. This is a a radically different mindset than many of the other people of some sort of faith or another that would have lived in her city. Verse 12, she demands that the spies seal their agreement by swearing by the Lord. All these things indicating faith in God's existence. Throughout the chapter, she demonstrated her faith not just with her words, though, but with action. Uh, I think this is really where the rubber hits the road, right? Uh, You guys have probably heard the story before about the pastor in a country church, and they had had a prolonged drought. They had a lot of farmers in the church. It was really getting worrisome, so they decided to have a prayer meeting where they would all come and pray for God to send rain. And they all gathered in the church, and it was dry. The ground was like baby powder outside. They come together desperate for rain to pray, and the pastor gets up, and he's looking over the congregation like he's looking for something. And he says, you all know why we're here. I want to know why there's no umbrellas. (laughs) Right? Right? And I think we can, you know, we are just trained as human beings to put less stock by what a person says and more by what they do. Uh, Faith finds expression in what we do. And what we do reveals what we actually believe. And so maybe even more than the words of Rahab, let's just pay attention to what Rahab does as a sign of her faith. First of all, let's talk just a second more about Jericho. Again, I already talked about how robust those walls were. In fact, Jericho, as far as archaeologists can determine, is the oldest city on the planet. Uh, It would have been, as far as we know, the birthplace of these kind of fortifications. These were ancient fortifications, and they'd been built and expanded upon over the generations. Guys, they were substantial. They were, uh, anybody in the ancient world would have looked upon these things with some awe. Just the scale of these fortifications would have been immense at that time. Uh, One ancient historian even said, not having witnessed them, but the legend was that two chariots could ride abreast at the top of the wall, the inner wall. They had a secure water source, uh, always uh, something that you needed in that ancient world. Uh, In chapter 3, verse 15, we're told that the, the time at which the Israelites entered Canaan, the Canaanite lands, was just after the harvest. So all of the grain bins were just chock-a-block full. They had all the food reserves laid up they could possibly want. Food would have been in abundance. In chapter 6, verse 2, God himself describes Jericho's soldiers as mighty men of valor. Now here's what I think the equation we can come up with. Walls plus water plus food, 
plus some pretty rugged dudes, all that equals time. That all equals time. All that equals hope. A lengthy siege was what they probably thought would play out. And who knows what would happen? Maybe one of their sister cities would come to their aid. Maybe somehow it would work out okay to our advantage. But even with all these assurances and the possibility of a lengthy, drawn-out, protracted siege, on day seven, where is Rahab and all her family? They are gathered into her apartment. What we believe finds expression in what we do. And what we do reveals what we actually believe. So Rahab's words gain a lot of credibility and weight when we marry them up with what she did. Uh, We all believe, or as professing Christians, we believe that Jesus is coming back, and that could be before the end of this worship service. And the question I have to ask, and you have to ask yourself, I'm not pointing a finger, I'm, I'm in this moment, I'm along with you, asking God to plumb the depths of my own heart. Is the way I'm living today, does that make sense in light of what I say I believe about the soon return of Jesus? Hmm. I believe that a day is coming. Does it make sense the way I'm living? I find something interesting in what the spies had told Rahab before leaving Jericho. They said that if any of her family ventured outside the protection of her house, they, they could not guarantee their safety. In fact, more than that's kind of a soft way of putting it. <laughs> I said they couldn't guarantee their safety as though there was some possibility. Really, they said, if they're not in here, they're dead. Uh, for sure. That's the truth of it. And I, I, I don't like that kind of start. I'm, I'm naturally somebody who kind of soft pedals and makes words softer around the edges, but let's just call it what it was. They were not uh, giving her any reason to think that. They just said, if they're not in here, you won't find them anywhere because they are, they are dead for sure. Safety was only to be found in the house with the red cord hanging from the window. And if they ventured outside of that agreement, destruction, sure and certain. And this, this reminds me of the Passover. Uh, if you know your Bibles well, and it's okay if you don't, you can find this story in the Old Testament. Uh, the Israelites, before, um, while they were trying to convince Pharaoh to let them go, Um, One of the last of the plagues was they went and smeared blood over the blood of a sacrifice over the lentils of their doors, and the angel of death, uh, the angel would pass by and spare those in the homes who had the blood spread over the lentil. And it reminds me again of Noah's family finding safety inside the ark. Only those inside were spared from the flood. And, quite frankly, it reminds me of the church today. 
On that last day when Christ returns, bringing with him a day of judgment, only those who are found in Christ will be spared. By saying in the church, I don't mean this building, not not at all. Uh, What I mean is that those who are in Christ will be spared. God has been telling this story over and over and over and over again throughout his word. And guys, we're living in it. And it's real. You see, just like Rahab, we have received by faith a sure and certain word about how all this will end. By faith, we have come to understand that a day has been appointed for the destruction of the earth and all that is in it, and that because of wickedness. One day, all these walls that sinful man puts such confidence in are going to come crashing down. And people do put confidence in all different kinds of things, just as I'm sure the defenders of Jericho had confidence in their time-tested defenses and their water source and the food. They're going to fail. A covenant has been made with God and marked by the scarlet blood of Christ that all who are found in Him, though, will be saved, but all who are not will be judged. The great news, guys, is that none of this language is a threat. It's a warning. (laughs) Nobody has to be found outside. The doors are wide open. Anyone can come in. Nothing in your past bars you from coming into the safety of Christ. He is our ark. The door is wide open. There is a day coming where there will only be those who are inside and those who are outside, but these are days of decision. And this morning, it's my great privilege, my great duty before the Lord to present to you life or death. Come in, please. Find safety in Christ. Put your trust in Him for salvation. A United press release in a Midwestern city told of a hospital where officials were horrified to discover that the firefighting equipment, which had been installed when the hospital was first built, was never connected to the water main. For 35 years, it was there installed in every room in the hospital. They had the sprinklers, (laughs) Uh, you know, they had all the firefighting stuff throughout the building. And the hospital administrators had great confidence that if there was ever a fire, they had what it took to deal with that. But the pipe that led from the building extended just four feet underground, and there it stopped. The medical staff and the patients had felt complete confidence in the system, but theirs was a false security. It looked good, it looked solid, but they, it would have failed them if they needed it. And I wonder how many, like the citizens of Jericho, have been lulled into a false sense of security. They've laid their hopes in the lie that they are basically good, that God will grade on a curve. And that wall will come crashing down, for God has said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. And that Jesus, not our relative goodness, is the only way to the Father. Uh, If you are a visitor here this morning and you wonder what we believe about how a person is saved, 
I just want to disabuse you of the idea that Christians think you need to become a better version of yourself. <laughs> you, you don't need, that's not what saves. You need a savior. You need one who is perfect. Christianity is not a self-improvement program. Some have sought refuge behind the walls of drugs and alcohol or their work or the feverish, nonsensical accumulation of flammable stuff in a city destined to be burned. Just think how ridiculous it would have been if Rahab had scurried around Jericho snatching up properties <laughs> before the walls came down or remodeling her bathroom, something like that. No. She didn't invest in any of those things. Others, like the people of Jericho, simply believe. They simply believe they have time to figure something out. They'll wrestle with the question of who is Jesus and what is his significance on another day. And one thing that Jericho says to us is that all these walls will fail. Security and salvation can only be found in Christ. Now, that's true for somebody who might be listening in this morning as a non-believer. But perhaps you're a believer, and uh, you wonder what this might have for you. You say, well, I've already come into the safety of Jesus Christ. I'm already doing my level best to follow him. Uh, what does Rahab's story have for me? Well, I want you to see here that it did require... Um, some sacrifice on her part. Uh, in joining herself to God's people, she had to make a decision. I, I think you can't embrace Jesus without letting go of some other things. And I think that that's true for her too. And many of us still have some more work to do there. Some of us who have been brought in by the promise have made our peace with the wild and woolly corners of our heart. Maybe a long time ago, we stopped fighting against those strongholds of sin in our life, and we just have kind of gotten comfortable in the midst of them. Um, you might be embarrassed about their presence. Um, sometimes when somebody asks me about sin in my life, somebody I know well who I've invited into the reality of my struggles, I will say to them, yeah, I really struggle with that, when really, if I'm honest, I'm just be like, well, I'm just passively floating along in the midst of that sin current. <laughs> I don't like it, but I'm not really fighting it anymore. Struggle sounds too valiant for what it actually looks like sometimes in my own life. But maybe we do need to struggle. Maybe we need to get back to the work of tearing down some stronghold of sin in our lives, asking for help in that. Uh, remember, even the stronghold that was torn down in Jericho, that didn't happen, guys. That did not happen because of grit and determination on the part of the conquerors, right? did not happen because of ingenuity or extraordinary bravery. And I think part of the reason why it was done that way is because uh, 20 years afterwards, when they're sitting around a fire at night and they say, Grandpa, tell me about Jericho, Grandpa can't say, let me tell you about the part I played. <laughs> All he could just say was, God miraculously brought those walls down. God did it. And God wants to tell a similar story about your struggles with sin. He's going to do it through you, but pray for the miracle. Lean into who God is. 
and entrust him for a miracle over those areas of sin habit in our own lives. Let's, let's, double, let's recommit ourselves to praying, to fighting, for asking for help in the fight against sin in our own lives. I think that's something a believer can take away from this story. Another thing I think we can take away from this story is this, uh, every once in a while we just need a, a prompting, a reminder that this world is not the place to invest our hearts. Um, this is a place doomed to destruction. And yeah, I think we all have to work and pay our bills and I'm going to go home and mow my lawn if it doesn't rain, but it probably is, so I don't have to mow my lawn. That's awesome. I'm going to keep maintaining my property and stuff. There's work to be done. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that when Jesus comes back, is, have I been living in a way that at all evidences a faith that this is not where it's at, that there's a reward on the other side? I like to tell the story, Sarah and I used to go fishing when we were first married, and we would go fishing in Lake Champlain. We were living in St. Albans, Vermont at the time. And so we'd drive over to Alberg where there was some fishing off of a rocky pier kind of a thing. And we were looking across and there were trees growing out of a fort on the other side of the lake over there. And we were curious about it, so after we were done fishing, we caught nothing, by the way. We got in our car, drove across the lake, a little short little bridge there, and there was one of those little historical placards that said Fort Blunder. That's what it was called. And it was a blunder. I think I've told you guys this story before, um, but it really meant a lot to me, and I've thought about it a lot spiritually, but Fort Blunder was built completely by accident in Canada. Uh, the U.S. Army had committed uh, the bulk of its budget that year to building Fort Blunder. This was right after the War of 1812. But the surveyors were drunk when they, dis when they laid the line. So they poured all this money and effort into this huge edifice bristling with cannons, only to have Canada go, yeah, but that's, that's in Canada. <laughs> you, can't, you can't do that. So America had to, like, very embarrassingly take all our cannons away, and then farmers came and took all the stones and hauled it off to use for building foundations and stuff. My conviction is that a lot of the time, our lives look like we are building on the wrong side of the border with eternity. We are building massive edifices completely on the wrong side of the border pouring our money and our energy and our passions into what? Something that you're going to leave or it's going to leave you. And so one of the things I look at the life of Rahab and I just go, man, I want to be like a Rahab. I want to live and act in a way that makes sense, that we're all short-timing it here. What am I even doing with my days under the sun? All these things will fail. These things occur to me in the life of Rahab, and just this morning, thank you for your attention, just wanted to pass these things along to us, and I just pray that God would continue to grow these things in our hearts long after we have left this place this morning. Let me pray, and as I do, I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, God, I have just poured out a big pile of words from up here. Uh, but Father, as we've already seen, words 
uh, have a, a way of showing the truth of our inner world, but God, they can also be a cover. And so, Father, I pray that as we go out from here, what we confess with our mouth would be lived in our lives. And God, let that begin with me. Father, train us. Oh, God, train us by your Spirit to look to you in trust, to believe your word over and above what we see with our natural eyes. As it says in your word, God, help us to walk by faith, not by sight. God, we live behind walls. We live in the midst of certain assurances of comfort and provision. But God, in a moment, the illusion of this world can be stripped away, and we're just left with one, one question. Have we put our trust in Jesus for salvation? Are we covered by the scarlet of his blood? Are we in him? Father, I pray that we would be willing to give you anything you want to take and to take from you anything you want to give. God, you fill this life with blessings, homes, friends, wonderful experiences. But God, we are sometimes too tempted to fall in love with this place and to give the full measure of our hearts invested here. God, help us like Rahab to believe by faith in a coming day and to live for that. Father, you, it pleased you to make this woman, this extraordinary woman, an ancestor of Jesus himself and the great-great-grandmother of David to whom you gave the promise of an unending kingdom. Father, you use unlikely people. You use broken tools. You use us here at State Road. Father, we're so glad to be yours. God, I pray that you would help us to live in the midst of this, this place in these days as a living reminder of you, our Lord. And may we, may we reveal with our words and with how we live that we believe your promises. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.